Welcome back to the Tip of the Twine podcast, and um, boy, do we have an uh, incredible weekend in basketball um, with uh, the Rockets-Warriors game 6 on Friday and then both the game 7s yesterday um, on Sunday night. It was just, just kind of an incredible day uh, for me, and plus if you add that, if you're a Game of Thrones fan like I am, you had quite the uh, Sunday night um, from about 3, 3.30 Eastern until about midnight. It was kind of... Um, a constant just churn of emotions and excitement and all kinds of crazy stuff going. So um, with the uh, conference finals kicking off tomorrow night, Tuesday night, um, I wanted to jump in and get a kind of a second round review and a conference finals preview, talk a little bit about what happened in the game sevens, what to expect going forward, and just kind of go um, shot for shot with each series and, and kind of go from there. So I'm going to start uh, in the Eastern Conference and with the um, – the series that ended first uh, with the Bucks and the Celtics, uh, the Bucks were able to dispatch um, the Celtics in Game Five uh, earlier the last weeks. So the Bucks have got pretty significant rest because uh, the Eastern Conference series isn't starting till Wednesday. The Western Conference series is starting tomorrow on Tuesday. But you know, uh, I think the Celtics came out in Game One and we saw them. Uh, they got hot. They played well. Um, they shoot shot the ball really well. They kind of put the Bucks in a tough position and kind of showed that they had the ability to exploit the Bucks scheme and, and, and what they expected to see from it. And, and you know, we had a, a, a variety of just kind of absurd comments coming out of that, um, most of all from Paul Pierce, who, who liked to say that the series was over um, right after game one, which was just pretty all-time bad take. And kind of what we saw after that for the rest of the series is that the Bucks they made their adjustments. Um, Giannis figured out how to, how to get his looks and get looks for his teammates with the Celtics um, against the Celtics defense and um, the Bucks kind of made some switches to their scheme a little bit they still kind of they did a lot of what they still like to do in the pick and roll with the deep drop they did some switching they did some late switching they did some hedging they kind of mixed and matched a little bit um, to kind of throw Boston off and you could just tell from for the rest of the series that um, Boston was thrown off a little bit um, the, the um, they had some difficulties um, their shooting kind of failed then they went cold for a couple games and they were exceptionally cold Friday night uh, or not Friday night, but in Game Five, and it just um, the the Boston just wasn't able to counter uh, what the Bucks were doing, and you can kind of you could kind of see, you know, I kind of hate the narrative of of players like uh, not playing as hard as possible. I think you have to you got to um, you have to be pretty sure that they're actually not giving a hundred percent to kind of really make that criticism, and I think people come at that too often, but it did. Um, there did at times seem to be somewhat of a lackadaisical, maybe not a lackadaisical effort on the part of Boston in Game Five, but on the part of like. You know the Bucks are showing us one thing, and we can probably get a better shot if we if we get through all of our stuff. But maybe I'm just gonna settle. I don't I don't think they weren't playing hard, but I think there was a lot of settling that might have gone on. And um, I think you saw a lot of that with Kyrie. You could tell after in Game Five throughout the entire series that the Bucks' length was bothered had bothered Kyrie. Um, you could tell he was frustrated. He was back at it again with his you know crazy comments at the end of the game we saw him at the end of game four like demanding to guard Giannis and demanding to guard Middleton and um and put it put himself in situations where he can be exploited defensively and that was interesting um and he kind of progressed as the series went on and especially in game five he just kind of doubled down on taking bad shots uh only had one assist he did not shoot the ball well he had a bunch of turnovers and it wasn't a good way to go out um for him I still think um you know Jason Tatum um, did not um, live up to expectations all season. I guess a lot of people expected him to just kind of take a leap 
Um, even though what we've seen in the past from rookies is that you, that's usually not what happens. We don't really see a, a superior leap in their, their second season. A lot of guys, you know, kind of take a step back or take a smaller step forward depending on their situation. And that's just what we saw with him. But I think his future remains bright. And we, we, we know what he can do um, even if he struggled in the season and at times in the playoffs. And I think Boston also got a pretty good contribution from Jalen Brown and his future remains bright. Um, especially on the defensive end. And I think um, that kind of leads into, you know, it's going to be an interesting offseason for the Celtics. I think a lot of it's going to be based on what, what happens with Kyrie, if he wants to leave, if he wants to stay, if Boston looks to trade for Anthony Davis, how that all works out. Um, and I think that's going to be a super complex situation and um, certainly will kind of drive their decision-making going forward. I um, mean, as for the Bucks, you know, they, they were the best team kind of all season. Um, and you know, they, they, they did have that flat game one against the Celtics, but they came out right after that. And you could tell, um, that, you know, they're committed to going hard. You know, you can see the competitive nature in Giannis. And I think, um, what's really been huge for the Bucks is their depth. You know, they're probably one of, if not the deepest team in the playoffs. And you saw that, you know, George Hill, Pat Connaughton just, just brought it off the bench, like exceptionally for them. I think I saw a stat that said the Bucks are getting like 37 points per game from their bench, um, in the playoffs and their bench like severely outplayed the Celtics bench and just at times George Hill and Pat Connington were putting in great minutes um, against, you know, starters on the Celtics side and just kind of dominating the game um, in ways that you didn't really expect. Um, their defense continues to work well after the adjustments they made following game one, which is good. Um, that's a, that's a huge get for them just because, you know, you could see that their 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 defense is going to be, be tested. They're committed to that deep drop, and I think that's going to going to put stress on their defense throughout um, uh, the conference finals as well. And if they go further, but I think a big um, key that we saw with the Bucks was the fact that Brogdon was able to come back um, um, in Game Five, play limited minutes, but at least contribute. Um, I think that's going to be a big deal for them because they're going to need him going forward in the series against the Raptors. I think that um, he gives them just another extra piece, another extra guard who can make plays, kind of do um, what they need him to do and just kind of push things forward for them and kind of add another guy who can shoot, who can make, make plays off of, off of a closeout. And so that when Giannis drives in, he's not just driving in and throwing out to, make, to basically all shooters and then maybe one or two guys who can make a play off the bounce. you got another guy who can make the play off the bounce or make a secondary pass and keep the defense on its toes. I think that's going to be a big deal. I'm really excited to see. You know, we've kind of seen Giannis slowly take steps throughout his series and with all the talk about how he might win MVP this year, and I certainly think he will. Um, the fact that um, uh, we're gonna we're good to see him on display in the conference finals is gonna be a big deal for him going forward, and um, it would be great to see uh, him at, at at the age he is kind of push his team into the East Finals. But for that, they're gonna have to go through the Raptors after the 76ers and Raptors epic Game Seven. So yeah, let's, time to talk about uh, the 76ers Raptors game from last night, uh, Sunday night. An absolutely epic game. Um, I think a lot of people, I, I didn't tend to agree with this, but a lot of people kind of coming into this series didn't expect to be as close of a series as it turned out being, you know, kind of expected the Raptors to, to have the advantage here. But instead, what we got was a, uh, a an epic seven-gamer with probably one of, if not the greatest, um, game-winning shot um, in the playoffs, in playoff history. Um, it's definitely arguable given the game seven and the stakes and the difficulty of the shot and all that um but Kawhi just kind of came up absolutely huge for the Raptors uh once again in this game and Philly you know I think 
I think a lot, sadly, um, a lot of the talk we're going to get about Philly and what we've seen so far is like all this whole humming about Brett Brown and stuff like that. Um, and um, I think that's probably premature and bad. I think um, given the margins of this game, um, there's certain an argument to be made like, oh, what if Joel Embiid, you know, was did not jump a second late and jumped right when Kawhi jumped and, and blocked that shot, and then they went to OT and the 76ers won, we'd be, everyone would be having a complete flip narrative. It'd be a huge narrative about how Kawhi is going to leave and all this stuff. So I think um, having a rushed narrative is just something that we need to avoid general, just kind of bask in how intense this game was. Um, it was back and forth most of the game. Um, there's a couple times when the Raptors pushed out um, big leads, especially one in the third quarter where it just they just pushed out about a nine-point lead, and it looked like Philly was just done. Um, and Philly um, battled right back, went on a 10-0 run of their own, took a one-point lead, and kind of just fought and fought and fought um, for the rest of the game down to the very end where it's tied and Kawhi has to hit an incredible shot to um, to win the game for them. I think um, when you look at it, you could definitely tell that uh, for the Raptors there was just some hesitancy um for everyone not named Kawhi to shoot the ball, um, Pascal Siakam seemed willing to put it up there, but he was having a tough game. Both Gasol and Lowry kind of just had a second hesitation um, most often when they got the ball in a position to shoot, and so that's why you saw Kawhi take so many shots. You know, he took 39 shots. Um, he made 16 of them. They needed every single one. Um, but I think uh, kind of what stands out um, for the Raptors side for this game especially is just kind of how well they played um, defensively and especially down the stretch, you know. There's like three straight possessions um, from like in the last three minutes for Philly where they came down, you know, they walked it down because they were all gassed and you could tell that. So that means you're getting into your offense a little bit late um, given the shot clock. And because you're getting into the offense late with the shot clock, you know, you have less time. And the Raptors are really aggressive about denying the ball and, and, and um, covering the action. I think that's something that needs to be pointed out here that if you missed it, like down at the end, Philly wasn't just trying to just give it to Jimmy and get out of the way. Um uh, they were trying to get into their stuff. Brett Brown had stuff t- call, uh, drawn up. He had good plays um, set up that he wanted to ran- run, and just um, a combination of them just kind of bringing it up a little slow, and the the Raptors just kind of being hyper focused led to you know one actual shot clock violations and two basically basic situations which were basically uh, shot clock violations for all intents and purposes, and kind of in, in a game of margins, um, having those not go your way when you absolutely needed them. Is obviously a big deal, and we we clearly saw that uh, with um, the 76ers, um, and, and so that's why I think you know I think it's a kind of immature, premature to like be like oh Brett Brown definitely has to go now you know he's he's been a pretty solid coach throughout the entire process, and then he has this starting lineup which only played like ten games together in the regular season. He had to make it all work in the playoffs, and he did a pretty good job. He had good stuff drawn up, drawn up. He made good adjustments in um, both the Brooklyn and this series, both defensively and offensively, to manufacture points for them. And I think if there's one um, big takeaway that I have, is just like you got to just look at Embiid's numbers here. You know, Embiid, he's dealing with a knee issue in the first rounds. He's not 100% there. He's been sick all second round, so taking down his percentage even more. Um, and you kind of saw that offensively. He wasn't as good as he wanted to be offensively, but he hit free throws when you need to. He hit shots when he when he, when you needed him to. And the fact of the matter is, is they lost this game by two. And Bede played 45 minutes and was plus 10, which has never happened before um, since plus minus started getting tracked intensely um, since 2000. And just to think about, you know, he was on the game for 45 minutes um, and and was plus 10, and they lost by two. So that means in the three minutes he was off the floor. His team was minus 12, so they were minus 4 per minute in the three minutes he missed, which is just absolutely absurd. Um, 
you know, Embiid finished plus 90 overall for a series where in a series, I think that they lost, they were, you know, their minus was double digits as a team, which is incredible as well. Um, when you just have the roster construction situation where, you know, you have this stud starting lineup, you've got some bench guys that can come in and give you some great effort, like um, James Ennis and Mike Scott, but then, you, you know, you have like four or five centers on the roster and Embiid's the only center who can play. Um, that pigeonholes you because, it, it, you know, um, Brett, Brett Brown was reluctant to go with Simmons at center or play small ball lineups considering Gasol was out there so much and you got the length of Siakam and the length of Kawhi. And that's that's a reasonable hesitancy to have, but instead he's, you know, throwing Greg Monroe in there and that, that just wasn't working clearly. And I think um, it's hard to kind of blame Brett Brown entirely for that, um, just given the roster construction. But, I mean, you got to watch this game. And I think the big takeaway is just Kawhi's back. Um, he's going to be dominant. And the Raptors have got um, plenty of the talent, um, and 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 Nick Nurse is going to have him coached up to definitely give the Bucks a run for the money and possibly even move on to the finals. And you know, honestly, I think um, either of these teams in the East could win the finals um, if they play well, um, whether they match up against Golden State or Portland. And I think that's the big takeaway on the Raptors side. On the 76ers side, you just you know how special Embiid is. I think um, we saw Ben Simmons drift in and out, and I think you got to find out if, if Simmons is going to commit to just adding a little bit more to this game. I think it's pretty clear that we'd love to see him with a jump shot um, and just do something with that. And then also um, making a choice on who you bring in back. Are you going to? Because I don't know if they can. I don't think they can make it work cap space wise to bring back everybody to to run it back with Butler and Tobias and and Redick and everybody else. And so I think that. We're, Requires you to make shooter make choices. Can you bring back Redick at a smaller number? Bring back Butler at the number he wants at, and then maybe find what you're getting from Tobias um, with a couple other guys and kind of enhance your depth a little bit that way. Maybe Butler walks, so maybe you got to ro- roll with Jimmy and Tobias, and then go big spend to get another guy. You know, a late game closer type guy. If there's a guy out there that you can grab for that. Um, and then another thing, you know, it, it's gonna, it's, there's a lot made of it. You could tell how broken up Embiid was. You can tell how hard he was playing. He came from the opposite elbow and ran all the way to play defense on that last play and contested Kawhi. He was clearly 100% locked in and going as hard as possible. And he just, you know, he just came up a little bit short. And in a game of inches, he was just an inch or so short. And that's incredible for a guy, like I said, who was sick, who was had a knee injury, played 45 minutes, which is more than uh, you would want him to play given his situation and given his general conditioning. And definitely had a, he's got the look and the, the makeup of a guy that's going to come back and be at it all summer and come back next season um, recharged. What this uh, leads to is a pretty um, good matchup in the Eastern Conference Finals between the Bucks and the Raptors. They're, they're the two best teams in the East all season. Um, we get to see Giannis go head-to-head in the playoffs against a guy at his position that's also fighting for probably the for the uh, best player in the league title in Kawhi. Um, well, and so the defensive scheme and the like for me, as soon as that matchup gets locked in, someone's like, oh, we're going to get Giannis versus Kawhi for however many games. This is going to be exciting. They both can guard each other and just kind of go from there. But uh, when you look, kind of look back what both teams did in the Eastern, in the regular season, we saw Middleton guarding Kawhi and Kawhi. Kawhi guarding Middleton on the other end, um, and same situation with Giannis guarding Siakam, Siakam guarding Giannis. Um, so I think that would probably be what to expect for each team to start out as and to kind of make adjustments from there. You know, they the Raptors could put Gasol on Giannis. A lot of teams try just putting their center on Giannis, but then you get in the situation where do you want Giannis driving downhill at Gasol um, consistently, you know, every time down the floor? Would you rather put Siakam or even Leonard, someone who can stay with him and pressure him a little bit more on him? and kind of force him um, to deal with pressure a little bit more rather than just kind of giving him a runway 
Um, same thing, we saw Middleton do a pretty solid job against Kawhi in the regular season. We'll see if that continues. Um, Kawhi quick, clearly had a big burden on him uh, throughout uh, this past series, and, and we'll have an, an increased burden on him again in this next series. And so I think that's why we might see some interesting um, defensive matchups and defensive scheming so that, you know, Kawhi and Giannis can each can kind of modulate how where all their effort is going to, where all their energy is going to. Um, I don't think either team wants one guy to go 100% um, on one end and, and not have enough to come back or, and, and be strong on the other end. And I, I think we will definitely kind of see some chess match stuff there as well. Um, do the Bucks stay in their deep drop pick and roll? I think that'll be interesting. I mean, because the Raptors can put the shooters out there to, to um, hit them, but like I said, these shooters... They looked hesitant in Game 7. They could be hesitant in the next round. And it'll be very um, intriguing to see how that is played as well. And I think I, I do think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to a lot of um, who can make more plays between Giannis and Kawhi, who can get their castmates, you know, Middleton on one side, Lowry, Siakam, Gasol, you know, Miritic, um, Brooke Lopez, who can get their other guys um, involved more on the other ends. And then... Um, especially for the Bucks, how much can Brogdon give you? You know, he could change the game as a as a big, tough physical guard who can, like I said earlier, attack off the closeouts, do really play really well defensively. He had stints against Kawhi in the regular season where he held up um, for short periods of time, and that would be able to, you know, you throw Brogdon out there with Giannis and Middleton. That lets both Giannis and Middleton rest a little bit defensively because Brogdon can take Kawhi for a couple possessions. Maybe that's you you scheme around putting that up, um, playing that way for a couple minutes to uh, kind of. Uh, eke out offensive runs or if you need to, you know, kind of balance it out that way. And so I think that'll um, be an interesting part to look out for um, in this series. Um, and I, I definitely think this is going to be a better one. I think it will be longer. I tend to lean towards the Bucks um, throughout the series, but I, st I think it might go six, might go seven. I would be surprised to see the series go five. Um, and then I think the last critical thing I want to hit on before moving on to the Western Conference uh, games is the fact that... Um, there's going to be a rest, um, rest versus rest point of view here. You know, obviously the Bucks um, have had basically a week off to kind of recuperate. I mean, that's huge for Brogdon for getting him ready, probably for the mileage and um, just how hard Giannis has to play. That's good. Um, and I think in the end, that's going to be the more beneficial thing. Um, the the Raptors do have a longer turnaround than we'll say Portland had, but you know the Raptors, uh, you know, won last night, late last night. They had today, Monday, and then tomorrow, and then they play on Wednesday. So they at least had two days in between, whereas, the, as we'll talk about in the Western Conference situation, the Trailblazers only had one one day, which is kind of absurd. They're kind of trying to get on that alternating schedule pretty quickly. Um, and that makes sense um, uh, for the scheduling point of view, but it does lead to some, some, some tight windows, and I definitely think there will be a fatigue factor. Um, at least a little bit in the Bucks. Um, it'll be on the Bucks to kind of take advantage of that. I think that's going to be something that they need to work for. Uh, like I said in the Rockets, uh, and lead up to the Rockets Warriors series, I thought that because of the quick turnaround from Game Six of the Warriors first round series to Game One against the Rockets, I thought it was going to be critical for the Rockets to kind of find a way to um, make them, you know, make them pay, um, take advantage of the of the uh, of the fatigue that the Warriors going to have, and we didn't see them do that. And you can make an argument that that close first game could have flipped to the series. Um, and so I would expect to see the Bucks come out, um, especially a guy as competitive as Giannis, and especially with the, um, the way we've seen Mike Boonholzer coach um, not only this season but these playoffs as well, to see them kind of come out and work to take advantage of that, um, that they, uh, the fatigue that the Raptors will have and try and, try and get 
get that first game, especially, you know, to maintain home court advantage. Um, but I think that that could be big, you know, um, the Raptors still the first game game at home. It, it, it just, it, it just, it plays with the series and how the series works and, and, uh, taking one when you're tired, um, can have a big deal, especially cause they'll have probably more days in between games. And so getting that first one could have a, a, a big effect on them. But, um, I thought this second round and overall, and we'll talk more about the Western conference ones, but in the East was great. Um, especially the 76ers Raptors series. It was a great series. Um, back and forth, and I th- I'm, I'm excited. I think this uh, Eastern Conference Finals is going to be intense, and you know we could be looking at the NBA championship this year um, coming from the Eastern Conference for the first time in a couple of years, and like legitimately having a shot to just kind of overthrow the Warriors um, and also deal with the, the Blazers if the Blazers win. So I would definitely uh, stay tuned into this one. Um, next up, we'll switch over to the Western Conference and start by talking with uh, Houston and Golden State. Um, and their uh, six gamer. The first half of the second of the Western Conference Finals uh, matchup got set on Friday night as we got um, Game Six, um, much anticipated, highly watched matchup between uh, the Rockets and the Warriors with um, Kevin Durant out after getting a, uh, a leg strain in Game Five, and the Warriors kind of immediately, and this was much expected. Just kind of came out 100% in for a throwback. We, we knew we were going to see them play. Like, we, they played pre-Durant. A lot of movement, a lot of cutting, a lot of spacing. Steph wore throwback shoes. And um, uh, we got what we were built. The uh, Warriors kind of took it up a notch in this game, I think. If you've been watching the series game to game uh, for the first for the first five games, you kind of saw the Warriors, you know, playing the, the more iso ball uh, style. They play a little bit when Kevin Durant's out there, but also kind of playing... Again, not lackadaisical. I'm not trying, and I'm not saying they weren't trying hard, but you definitely could tell that they, there wasn't as much fire in them. The Houston was dominating them on the glass, especially getting offensive rebounds, and and that was hurting the Warriors um, for sh- for sure. And what we saw on Friday night was the Warriors just be like, look, for whatever reason, Katie out. They became the underdogs. A lot of people were picking the Rockets to win Game Six and go into Oracle and win Game Seven and kind of be like. Take take the spot, take it away from the Warriors, and you could tell on Friday night that the Warriors were pissed off um, with that narrative. You know, even though the Warriors are the better team, they were the favorites. All the stuff, the Rockets were heavily favored in Game Six, like minus six, which is incredible for a game of that magnitude between two teams and um, favoring the least talented team by such a large margin. But Warriors came out. We saw that 15-16 style offense, constant motion, lots of screens, lots of DHOs. Um, we saw the offense that, like for me, was one of the big things that. Um, you know, those first couple of years while I was still in college, I was getting more in-depth in the X's and O's. I was watching film every day um, to help our team, um, to help Auburn improve. And watching the Warriors was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, we can see what, like, peak offense can truly be. And it was just really exciting. And part of the reasons I, like, got really in on this team and enjoyed watching them, even if they weren't my team and even if they were the overwhelming favorites in this monolith that kind of has had a shadow over the league when they played like this it was just really exciting for me from a basketball pure standpoint something I really enjoyed and we saw that put saw them um put the Rockets defense to the test all night Friday night with that Clay Thompson had the huge first half while Steph struggled didn't score in the first half then Steph exploded in the second half at 23 in the fourth quarter as most in the fourth quarter ever and was just kind of dominant in his own way and we could see from basically from the get-go that the Rockets' defense just wasn't um, up to par, wasn't ready for that. You know, um, the Rockets' defense was truly why they lost the series, and we could see, you could see it just kind of on full display on Friday night. You know, I think a lot of times um, we can see games 
um, the narrative that I like to see when I'm watching games, and this happens occasionally, is um, some t some games will break down into one team is only taking contested shots and one team is consistently taking wide open shots. And I think game uh, six on Friday night was kind of like that. Um, a lot of the Warriors were consistently getting wide open shots, wide open possessions, um, and you know it doesn't matter who was getting the wide open shots; they were just trying to find open shots for guys. We saw you know someone like Andre Iguodala hit five threes, even though he's not you know, necessarily known as a three-point shooter, and all of his attempts were wide open. Whereas the Rockets, on the other hand, you know, they still have their offense. They're getting to the foul line, but they're taking a lot of contested shots. Chris Paul's taking a lot of contested, semi-contested pull-ups in the middle of the lane with bodies everywhere. Harden was, Harden got a couple, you know, he got his step backs, he got that stuff, but was for the most part taking contested shots. You know, P.J. Tucker was getting wide open corner looks, but there's, there wasn't a ton else, um, um, and you could tell that the difference when the, with the Rockets taking more and more contested shots and, and the Warriors taking more and more open sh shots and kind of how that affected. And I think one true encapsulation of this was just the fact that in the last 10 minutes of the game, the Warriors basically just said, we're just going to run one play and you're going to have to guard it. And the Rockets weren't able to guard it. You know, in the last 10 minutes, um, the Warriors ran this pretty simple. It was a side pick ball, a side pick and roll with Draymond and Steph. And there was no one in the corner on the strong side. Everyone was on the weak side for spacing purposes. You know, the Rockets just, and the Warriors just shredded the Rockets with this. They scored eight, time, eight, eight times of the ten times it was ran for 19 points. Um, the only two times they didn't score was when a great defensive play by the Rockets took away a lob to um, Kevon Looney. And then the other one was Draymond just drove it right into the heart of the defense and probably got fouled, but it didn't get called um, when Clint Capella kind of came out and hit him while he was in the air. And so you look at that, and that's just that's just kind of an encapsulation of what we saw all game, and just putting the Rockets defense to the test because you know with this Steph Draymond pick and roll, the Rockets were just like, okay, we got to come out and Steph, we can't we can't let him get a shot. And by coming out, you free up Draymond. Steph is really good at that pass. That's what they've been doing for years. Gets it to Draymond. All of a sudden, Draymond has got a four on three on the backside, which is what Draymond has made his money doing on the offensive end, just knowing the right play to do out of this. And you know the Rockets tried to they they made some sort they made um, shuttle adjustments over these last ten minutes you know trapping harder or just straight up switching and nothing they could do really um, could do much the Warriors were still scoring it made it harder on them towards the end you could definitely see the Warriors were, it was harder but you know even when PJ Tucker the defensive linchpin of the Rockets just said all right I'm just gonna straight switch switch this one both times he did that he got cooked by Curry on draft on either a drive to the lane and a pull up and a pull up three and so. Um, just kind of watching how the Warriors were able to dismantle the Rockets' defense um, with their throwback offensive scheme was was super exciting. It was it was a game that went down to the wire, and you know now the Warriors are kind of they're coming into the Western Conference Finals. Like I said, last game was on uh, Friday for a Tuesday game, whereas Portland played on Sunday for a Tuesday game. They're going to have some rest. Um, it was announced during media uh, today that Katie hasn't even been cleared back to come back to the court, so we probably won't see him for a while. Um, Cousins also hasn't been cleared back in the court, so we probably won't still probably won't see him. Both of those guys probably later in the series if we see them in the series at all. Um, and so that means the Warriors are going to come out. We're going to keep seeing them play like this, and um, they're going to have to keep putting this in and just playing with this effort and playing the style. And, you know, they're, they're going to need uh, contributions from their bench. Like I already mentioned, Andre Iguodala, he's a starter, but huge comp contribution from him. Kevon Looney played well. Sean Livingston played well. Quinn Cook even survived in some minutes, which is a, a surprise. you got you got Jonas Rebko, Jordan Bell playing well when they got opportunities. Um, just kind of playing better than you expected, and that's what you need um, in these do-or-die games towards the end of series. The Rockets side of it, you know, is obviously a little bit tougher. Uh, it's a kind of disappointing end of the season for them going out in the second round. 
losing game six at home. Um, and obviously, uh, I talked about how the 76ers are now the result of this huge, just this zero-sum game where if you if you lost, there has to be some negative narrative comes out. And we're getting that, you know, oh, did James Harden fail them? Should they have ever traded for CP3? And I think um, I'm, I'm probably self-admitted, um, probably one of the people who just doesn't like, I, I don't like the Rockets. I don't like watching them play. I don't like the ref baiting. I'm pretty critical of that, of the, the choices to bait the refs constantly. Um, and even me, I have to look at some of this criticism of the Rockets and be like, all right, guys, like this, this is not what we need to be doing. You know, James Harden did not play horrible. You know, James Harden played solid in game five, um, solid in game four. If in both game five and game four, he kind of disappeared down the stretch. Um, and that he just game five, at least he just didn't shoot as much, but his team was still, um, consistent offensively so it's not as much of a different disappearing he just played the offense a slightly different way and it was successful with them so that's fine like that's good um and then game six he played well throughout the entire game um he got his shots he shot pretty well um from the field he got to the foul line he only had a couple where i was like Ugh. he actually had some pretty good defensive plays as well um and you know their play style their team building choices have have pushed the warriors to the brink consistently even after the warriors have gotten katie so i don't think you can come at them um, I think that how this offseason plays out will certainly be interesting for them. Um, we saw at the trade deadline that this owner kind of pushed the front office to make choices to save money on the edges with the luxury tax, and I think that did cost him. You lose a guy like James Ennis, you kind of lost some some guys on the fair, on the fringe that you know if they hadn't gotten Austin Rivers um, off the scrap heap, then then you know maybe this is a much shorter series or something like that. So I don't think that this is a indication that the way Houston is doing things is horrible but there are there are obviously places on the margins where they can still improve and still make a run at this but I but their timeline is shortening with how Chris Paul is getting older um, I mean James Harden is 30 I don't expect him to have any decline yet for a couple of years but Chris Paul is clearly declining not the guy he was even two, last year or two years ago um, and how the owner chooses to play this year with saving money, um, given the results, will be interesting. You know, we'd hate to see this team get broken up, but we very well could see the owner put Daryl Morey in a tough position where he has to uh, save uh, money and cut costs even more, which is just ownership's a competitive advantage. And if your owner isn't willing to to make the, the right plays, then you're going to be in a tough position. I think that's what we're going to see for the Rockets. But moving on to the other series, we had Portland versus Denver. Um, that played out. The early game, 3.30 Eastern tip, super early uh, tip in Denver. And, you know, um, I thought thought this was a much-watched series for basketball nerds. There was a lot of adjustments, a lot of X and O stuff, the interesting pick-and-roll, who's going to guard who, how are we guarding who, you know, all that stuff was certainly super interesting. I did not think uh, Game 7 uh, did not disappoint, obviously. Early on, it was a big Denver lead. They had as much of a 17-point lead. They were kind of running away with it in the fourth quarter, first quarter. Sorry about that. But the Blazers stuck with it. They kept on fighting. They kept on fighting. Um, you know, uh, C.J. McCollum just kind of put the team on his back and kept on pushing. Uh, Damian Lillard, you know, didn't shoot well to start the game. Those shooting lows kind of continued throughout the game, but he hit some shots towards the end, but he kept involved, kept making plays. And, you know, Portland... There are times that it just looks super bleak for them. You know, they had um, Zach Collins getting his fifth foul on the same play where Rodney Hood um, injured himself, and Rodney Hood had been there off the bench guy. And it was just kind of got to the point where it looked like Portland was um, was you know on its back, and, and Denver had had a chance to step on the throat and kind of push it. And you know, uh, Evan Turner came up big, scored fourteen points off the bench, took nine free throws. You know, got shots off when he'd only taken three shots in the series up to that point. Um, like I said, McCollum was huge. He had a huge step back late with a great mid-range jumper that was, per, you know, uh, put put Portland up towards the end. And 
Portland winning this game seven on the road is especially huge, um, given how this, their season was treated after Nurkic got injured and all that. Um, and it's just it's an, it's an incredible it's a good job by them to to put themselves in a position to play for the a chance to appear in the NBA Finals and you know anything can happen you just want to be in the position to have a chance and that's what they've done and that's that's huge for them and kind of hopefully we'll see it flip the narrative on you know Terry Stotts um, Neil O'Shea and Dame as as winners more than you know just guys that flame out in the first round because they've been able to put together this deep postseason run you know on the other side for Denver. You know, I still think it's a super successful season for them. They didn't make it; they just missed the playoffs last year. Now they make it almost to the cusp of the Western Conference Finals. We've seen how good Jokic is. We've seen how good how much Jamal Murray's developed. He still has got more to go. Um, and then also, what this does for Denver is it instead of them like achieving all their goals and having some complacency for the offseason, they have they've gotten to a certain point, but have an idea of where they need to improve and how they need to go from here to make sure that they're in a good position going forward and they're improving year after year and that they can make an even deeper run next year. I mean, I'm really excited for what that means for them, how Jokic's game continues to develop, how him and Jamal Murray's game continues to develop, how Gary Harris continues to develop. I thought he um, probably should have had a couple more shots on Sunday um, um, in lieu of some of the other guys in Denver whose legs just kind of looked tired and they were just missing the open shots they were consistently getting kind of on the back of Jokic's good play. So that was a great series. Um, definitely sad to see to see it over, but it was did not disappoint from Game 1 through Game 7, especially including a quadruple overtime game. But we do get a great Western Conference Finals matchup out of it. The Warriors historically struggled with guarding smaller guards and how they handle um, McCollum and Damian Lillard is going to be super interesting because you obviously have Clay to put on one of them who guards the other. You know they're definitely going to Portland's definitely going to work to make Steph um, have to work as hard as possible on the defensive end, make things um, difficult for him, and, and he's going to have to hold his own and truly um, and, and truly um, and uh, buck up and play defense. But Steph has shown the ability to do that when he has to. I mean, on the other side, we saw um, the Warriors kill um, Houston with their constant movement. And then also with the Steph Draymond pick and roll, and we should see a ton of that in this series. You know, there has been this whole thing. Cantor has had this narrative because coming into the playoffs, it was a can't play Cantor because he doesn't play defense well, and you can play him off the floor. He's played pretty well in the first two series, but the the Warriors will certainly test test that. They won't just put him in pick and rolls. They'll put him in off ball screen actions. They'll put him in everything and just kind of force him to to move. And with um, uh, Zach Collins, Myers Leonard, any center Portland puts out there is going to have to find a way to hold his own because the Warriors are going to just make them over and over and over and over again have to guard these actions. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see Portland go to smaller lineups. However, the risk with that is neither um, Alfred Aminu or Maurice Harkless is playing particularly well of late. You know, they can both play defense pretty solidly, but neither is hitting their open shots. And it's hard to put um, minus shooters out there because then the Warriors will do a good job of shrinking the floor um, and clogging up the, the driving lanes and the opportunities for Dame and CJ. And so I think we're going to see a lot of the tra- tra- um, chess mashing on the pick and rolls. We'll see drops. We'll see traps. We'll see blitzes. We'll see switches. We'll see a lot of different stuff. So that's going to be fun to watch. I do think, you know, the Warriors obviously have the talent advantage. They get KD back at some point. It's certainly going to be make this series even tougher for Portland because we know there's that makes Portland have to keep Mo Harkless or Amino on the floor at all times just because they need the length of them to even have a chance of guarding KD. And so... Um, but we'll see. I think the Blazers definitely have the ability to push this one, you know, five, six. I don't know if I could see it going seven. I think five is probably the more likely outcome, but I think the Blazers get at least one, and you know Dame's going to come out firing to try and win one in uh, Oakland where he's from. So my pick for that one would 
probably be Warriors in six um, as well, and I expect a Bucks um, Warriors NBA Finals matchup that will be um, super exciting, one hundred percent. But um, it's going to we're going to be a good two uh, great um, conference final series to watch. And then um, before signing off, I think what was interesting with the Portland Denver series is CJ McCollum hit the step back mid range two pointer to kind of ice the game in ways and there's this immediate thing with LeBron tweeting and all these people oh analytics is dead and it's like see the problem for me with that is I'm an analytics guy through and through that's what I did at Auburn that's what I believe in I write analytics based articles evaluating draft prospects for Valley of the Suns check those out if you're interested but analytics is, is definitely a part of how I look at basketball and for me what analytics is is about gaining um an inch you know, a tiny little bit on the margins here and there through a detailed analysis of the game and understanding what you do good, what you do bad, what you can do better, which, and, and kind of taking advantage of situations, matchups, and opportunities to gain that slight advantage so that you are in a position like Portland was on Game 7 to put the ball in your score and tell him, go get me a bucket. You know, CJ McCollum's like almost like a 50% um, mid-range shooter. That's a good shot for him. As an analyst guy, I'm not watching that being like, oh, he shouldn't have took that shot. He should have fought to get get it to one of the three-point shooters. Like, no, that's not what analytics is saying. And if someone is telling you that and claiming to be an analytics head that, oh, CJ should not have shot that, then they're not, then that's a person who's not combining numbers in basketball. They're just, they're, they're kind of, they're, it's almost, they're almost putting out a false narrative. As an analytics guy, I'm sitting here and I'm happy with that shot. What analytics is about is, like, the core for me, if we're going to talk about analytics in the two versus three debate, the core is if you're a player and you're standing 19, 18 feet or back, but not behind the three-point line, and we get you the ball, I want you to take that one step back because that extra two or so feet is worth an extra point and the difficulty on the shot is much smaller. But this is, but that that's the core of two-verse-three analytical debate. That's what I'm talking about. Like, I'm not saying that, and I don't think most analytics people are going to say, like, don't take open mid-range shots or don't take mid-range shots if you can make mid-range shots. It's more of if you were, like, standing, like, right on the line, please just step back and get that extra point because that extra point is going to make such a big difference, and that's that margin that we're trying to get you so that you can be in a winning situation down at the end. So that was my two cents on the whole situation. I think LeBron knows that, too. LeBron is a very smart basketball player, um, and so that's kind of what disappointed me about that tweet. Also... One last thing before going off, uh, NBA Draft Lottery is on Tuesday, same night that the Warriors-Portland series will start. Um, I'm super excited for it uh, with a flattened lottery odds. You know, there's obviously a favorite, a couple favorites for the for the number one top three pick, but it, it realistically could go to anyone in the top eight or nine. Um, and so that, that's going to make um, lottery night super intense, super interesting, and critical. You know, this is a make-or-break pick. A lot of teams on Zion. Um, he's, it's, it's widely seen as a one player draft in that way. And so who gets the number one pick on Tuesday night is, um, is going to walk away extremely happy. And I'm excited to see how that happens. I'm doing, I did a ton of draft coverage last year, did a big mock draft with a bunch of my guys who know the NBA, probably going to do that again this year. We're, we're already building out our preparation sheets. Uh, I'm putting together quite a board. I might, um, put a link out there and make it so that, uh, people listening to the podcast can kind of take a look at how I prepare the, the detailed breakdowns I do of all the players and all the teams and what their needs are thinking about that, but definitely going to have, uh, draft coverage and start ramping that up here soon. But it, it kind of starts with a lottery for me. Like obviously I've been doing scouting and preparation of the players that'll be in the draft. And, you know, I start that basically when it turns over into the new year. So in January, but we kind of 
get start uh, ramping up on what the team needs are and being able to contextualize the draft and actually start doing mocks once we get this order set down and we have a better idea and we know you know what teams are competing for the finals and what teams are kind of already out because the playoff teams um, adds intrigue as well. So be excited for that. That's definitely something to tune on and watch right before the Warriors and the Blazers kick it off. But thanks for listening. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, share. As per usual, I will probably be back hopefully next weekend. No, uh, I try to keep that solid recording and putting out schedule on Sunday nights, but sometimes uh, things get away from me and, and other life responsi- responsibilities intervene. But trying to keep this consistent, you know, keep listening, share with your friends, and I will talk to you guys next week. Yeah.